Well, good morning once again. It's so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, looking forward to looking into God's Word. So we want to turn our attention to this amazing story that we've been going through, the story of Jesus healing the blind man and all that has gone with it. And we're going to finish out chapter 9 today. We're going to look at verses 35 through 41. And so we're going to finish out this account today. But uh, don't check out on us. There's a lot yet to still uncover. There's still a lot to consider today as we look at the subject of spiritual blindness. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9. And as I said, our text for this morning will be verses 35 through 41. Well, many of you know our story. Uh, Kathy and I um, were a part of a church in Illinois for some 20 years. I served on the staff of that church as the senior associate pastor. And one of my ministries, or at least it became one of my ministries, was to kind of shepherd uh, struggling churches that were in our fellowship. Uh, we had a large church. Uh, we had a 750-seat auditorium. It was a magnificent facility. God had blessed our church in amazing ways. And, and so we were sort of uh, used by the Lord in many ways to come alongside of other smaller churches. And so I started to work with some of these smaller churches and one of these churches, I just fell in love with the people. Uh, they had had a meeting that they were going to close the doors of the church, and uh, it absolutely broke my heart. And so, Kathy and I uh, decided that we would leave the big church, and we would go, and we would pastor this little remnant, this little group of people about an hour away from our home, uh, 17 people that were left in this church. And so that was our decision. We left the big church. We went to the smaller church. And I remember uh, in the early weeks, <laughs> I'm thinking, what in the world have I done? What have we done? Um, how in the world is a church, a small, little, tiny church, going to grow in a town like this? This was a smaller community that was outside of Decatur, Illinois, a bigger city for sure, but this was a smaller community. And so what in the world have we done? How is the Lord going to use us to come alongside of these people and help them? Well, I remember in the early weeks and months of the ministry, it was almost depressing. Uh, we, we would go to church and there'd be 17, 20 people there but I remember distinctly that one Sunday morning, uh, as I was visiting with the people, and you know how I am, I go around and visit with different people, and I was, it didn't take long when there's 17 people, but I, I, I went around and I was visiting with people, and I noticed up uh, from the door that a family had come into the church, and it was a family of seven. It was a, it was a really good-looking family. It was a it was a, a younger family, five children, well-dressed, well-behaved. Uh, I thought, Lord, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And so I uh, went up to them, and I was talking with them. And essentially, what I wanted to know was, who are you, <laughs> where are you from, and why are you here? Those were the three, I didn't say it that way, obviously, but those were the three questions in my mind. Who are you, 
Where are you from? And why are you here? So keep those questions in mind. I'm going to come back to that. But as we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John, and and we do turn our attention back to this amazing account of Jesus healing of the blind man, there really is not much debate about the historicity of Jesus. i got to finish that story. So as I talked with them, and you know I was excited because I'm thinking this is the start of something that God can use because there were no families in the church. Kathy and I were the youngest people in the church. And so I'm thinking, man, this would be a great impetus for us to be able to move forward and to attract younger families. So when I did ask those questions, the answer that I got was, uh, we are the Smith family. I don't remember their name. We are the the Smith family. Uh, We are from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we're in the area for the weekend. And I thought, oh. So those are important questions, again, for us to remember as we move into this account today of Jesus and the Pharisees and this account of Jesus healing the blind man and all the fallout from that. And so this is uh, important for what we want to consider today. But there, there really isn't much debate about the historicity of Jesus, right? I mean, Um, it's almost universally agreed that Jesus was a real person who lived on the earth, died on a cross some 2,000 years ago. There's very little debate about that. Christians and non-Christians agree that Jesus existed. Even our dating system is built around his life and his death. Secular historians have recorded many accounts of the life of Jesus. It's really not up for debate that Jesus existed. And so the question has never really been, did Jesus live on the earth? The point of contention for those non-Christians center around the person of Jesus, who he was, uh, where he was from, and why he was there. Those are the three questions that the Gospel of John answers for us. Was he just like any man who has lived on this earth? Or is he indeed from the glories of heaven, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? And the answers to those questions are at the heart of why John wrote this gospel. Who is Jesus? Where is he from? And why did he come to the earth? And so we begin today uh, by looking at... uh, seven reasons why Jesus came to the earth, all from the gospel of John, because this is really at the heart of our passage for today. And so if we do a quick survey of the gospel of John, we're going to find at least seven, seven reasons that help us with the answers to those three questions. And the first is, uh, Jesus came to the earth to reveal God to men. And so John opens this gospel account of the life of Christ by firmly establishing his his deity and his humanity. It's the miraculous joining together of two hypostases, the human and the divine. This is called the hypostatic union. We looked at this um, a few weeks back. Um, it, It was always a part of God's sovereign plan for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to this earth as the perfect God-man for the purpose of revealing himself to mankind. And that is at the heart of why we have been given the gospel of John. 
John chapter 1, in verse 1, he cuts to the chase. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the word word there is the Greek word lagos. It's the visible, tangible expression of God. So in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the lagos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and called out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who is coming after me is proved to be my superior because He existed before me. For all His fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. And for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus said in John 7, 29, I know Him because I'm from Him, and He sent me. Second, and this really closely is related to the first, Jesus came to the earth to do the will of of the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. So notice again a reiteration of the fact that he already existed prior to his coming to the earth, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 18:37 tells us that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And so what was the will of the Father? And we get to that here as we move to number three. The third reason why Jesus came to the earth was to save those who would believe in him. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, we find that the Father sent Jesus to save sinners from the due penalty of their sin. And so all who would believe in Jesus Christ and place their faith and trust in him, he would pardon. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The fourth reason why Jesus came to the earth, we find in John chapter 10 and verse 10, and it's to give believers abundant life. To give believers abundant life. Jesus came to offer believing sinners eternal life, but not just eternal life. Not just eternal life in the future, but an abundant, superabounding life now. John 10, 10 says, I came so that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. The Lord has given us an abundant life as Christians. Um, we should not be wrapped up in constant negativity. We have been given an abundant life, a life to celebrate, a life to be able to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must not lose track of our mission. Our mission is to live out who we are in Christ, and that is this abundant life that the Lord has given to us. Fifth, the fifth reason why Jesus came to the earth was to rescue unbelievers from the darkness. 
And this sort of goes hand in hand with what we just considered concerning salvation. John 12, 46 says, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone that believes in me will not remain in the darkness. So Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and his domain is the domain of darkness. Jesus came as the light of the world. And when Jesus was preaching the great Sermon on the Mount, he spoke to his followers and said that you too are the light of the world. Why? Because they're followers of the true light who shines in the darkness. And so part of our responsibility as Christians is to shine the light of Christ in the darkness. And so that is the fifth reason. The sixth is to judge those who reject him. To judge those who reject him. And we're going to take a closer look at this in a moment because it's in our passage. It's John 9, 39. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. And so Jesus came to offer eternal life to all who would believe in him. But for those who reject him, they will receive what they deserve for their sin, which is his judgment. And so why is that? Because sin must be paid for. Sin must be paid for. Jesus came to pay the price for the sin of all who would believe in him. But again, for those who reject Jesus, they will receive what all sinners deserve, which is eternal death, the judgment of God. And then seventh, and finally, Jesus came to the earth to bear witness to the truth. Of course, John 14 and verse 6, we sang the words of that just earlier here. It says that Jesus is the truth. John 18, 37, therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, that statement by Jesus launches us back into the heart of the matter at hand in this encounter between Jesus, the blind man, and the Pharisees. Spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Those who are spiritually blind cannot see the truth. And that's one of the chief reasons why Jesus came to the earth, to bear witness to the truth. And so let's read our passage for today, and then we're going to break it into smaller segments that I hope will help us with our understanding. But look at verse 35 of John chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and what he's referring to there is that the blind man was put out of the synagogue, and we looked at that at the end of verse 34. So in continuation of that, In that narrative, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So remember, the blind man was blind. He couldn't see. So when the encounter happened with Jesus, and he put the mud on his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, at that time, the blind man had never seen Jesus. He didn't know what he looked like. And so that's the part of this that needs to be understood. So he says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, meaning at that moment, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. 
And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who, who, who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So I'll explain what all that means here in just uh, a moment. But here in our text, we find three realities that are important for us to understand. Three realities. And the first one is that Jesus seeks out those whom he chooses to save. Jesus seeks out those whom he chooses to save. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out of the synagogue and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So it's important to note that, that Jesus is the one who pursued this man. Jesus, who is full of compassion and mercy, hears that this man whom he had healed was put out of the synagogue, and so he goes and he seeks him out. And so the parallel is unmistakable here. Jesus originally pursues this man to give him physical sight, and now he's seeking him out to give him spiritual sight. And it's hard to miss that the religious people rejected him. They rejected this man, but Jesus embraces him. I think that's important for us to think about and important for us to consider. Religion in and of itself is cold and man-made. I saw the other day that there are about 4,000, think of it, 4,000 different religions in the world. And if you consider true biblical Christianity as a religion, which I don't necessarily like to put it into that category, but I understand it, then 3,999 of those other religions are false religions because they are not built upon the grace of God who sent Jesus, God who sent Jesus Christ to come to the earth and to die in the place of sinners. And only by grace through faith in Christ do we have eternal life. People will believe just about anything. But religion is religion. It's, it, it's, it, in and of itself, it's very cold. It's, it, it's, it's man-created. But a relationship with Jesus bears the warmth of an intimate communion with him. And it is Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who sought out this man. This is a reminder that the Lord must initiate salvation or no one would come to him. Please understand this. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, tells us clearly that no one can or will come to him on their own because of, they're, they're blinded by their sin. Paul said in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. They, together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. Not even one person on the earth, not Mother Teresa, not these other people that are held in such high esteem. There is not one person who is not a sinner that lives on the earth. There's not one person who does good 
in the sense that they're good enough to be able to have a right relationship with God, there's not even one. So essentially, we're all in the same boat. The one thing, and we have diverse backgrounds. Many of you were born in different states, including me. Some perhaps different countries. We live in different neighborhoods. We work different jobs. We have different families and friends. We have a lot of differences. But the one thing we have in common that we all know for sure is that we're all sinners. We fall into the category. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous enough to have a right relationship with God. Not even one of us. Nobody on the earth, no one who has ever lived has the merit within themselves, perfection in and of themselves, to be able to have a right relationship with God. So because of that, God must do something. God must initiate salvation. And Jesus would say it this way in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise them up on the last day. And then in John 6, 67, he says virtually the same thing. For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Again, it's pretty clear. In Romans 3 and verses 10 through 12, it says there's no one who does good. There's not even one. There's no one who seeks after God. And then in John 6, 44 and John 6, 67, Jesus reiterates the same truth. Again, no one can come to me unless God does something, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Most everyone has heard uh, of what has been referred to as the seeker-sensitive church, right? We've all heard of that. This has been around for decades some time ago, when I was younger, there was a huge paradigm shift in thousands of so-called churches as it related to the mission and methods of the church. Rather than the church gathered teaching and training God's people in the scriptures for the purpose of edifying them and building them up in the faith and preparing them to scatter, to reach the world for Christ, church services began to be tailored for so-called seekers unbelievers. And there are still thousands of these so-called churches that exist today, and uh, you maybe have attended one in the past. Carefully crafted music, much of it secular. All the amenities that might attract an unbeliever. Little self-improvement ditties for sermons. Those became the flavor of the day because, you know, people can't pay attention for more than 20 minutes and they don't want to be confronted on their sin and shown the way of righteousness. They just want to feel good about themselves. So this movement, which is still so pervasive in many megachurches today and wannabe megachurches, is seemingly built on pragmatics and not the Word of God. Folks, faithfulness to the Lord should be our only desire, not pandering to unbelievers with a feel-good, watered-down gospel. We need to love people enough to tell them the truth. You didn't come today because you know 
how we are. You didn't come today to be patted on the back and to be like encouraged in your sin. We all came here today because we want to be challenged with God's Word. And if that means that we are convicted of our sin, then that's good. That's good. I've mentioned before that I preached a message one time, and I had a guy come up to me after the message, and he was firing mad. I mean, steam coming out of his ears. And I was preaching on the gospel, and I was preaching about sin, and he said, how dare you bring doubt into the life of my family about their salvation? I said, seriously? That's a good thing. That is a good thing for us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. That's a biblical thing. We're to do that before we take the Lord's Supper, which we'll participate in in just a a few minutes. That is what we should do. Our grace group is going through the book of 1 John. That's why it was written, so that we would examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We need to love people enough to tell them the truth. I've always wondered how such a movement could deceive so many people. Because their purpose for existence is built on a false premise that there are all these people out there who are seeking after God. But the Bible says no one seeks after God in and of themselves. Why? Because they can't. And because they have no desire to do so because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They are spiritually blind. Clearly, if you read the Bible, it is the Lord who is the seeker. Not man, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But just as clearly here, man must respond in faith. And so this is what we see here. This is the encounter. Jesus has sought out this man. He heard that he was removed from the synagogue. Again, Jesus' compassion and mercy kicks in. He goes and he finds this man that he had healed. He cares about him. He pursues him. But this man must respond in faith. Jesus asked him if he believes in the Son of Man. God's drawing brings about this man's belief. And without it, man remains dead in his trespasses and sins. This is why we can take no credit for our salvation. Because we didn't pursue him. He pursued us. We loved him because... He first loved us. So we can take no credit for our salvation. It's all of His grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 very clearly says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this brings us then to the second reality that we find here, and it's that Jesus shows Himself for who He is. Jesus shows himself for who he is. Because how can we believe on Christ if we don't know who he is? If we don't know who he claims to be. If we don't know who he is, where he's from, and why he came. Look at verse 36. 
He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? This is so raw, isn't it? I love this. Jesus said to him, You have both seen me, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So Jesus shows himself for who he is. Remember when pressed by the Pharisees, this formerly blind man had already acknowledged that Jesus must be from God. We find this back in verse 17, that he responded to their question about who Jesus is, and he speculated that he must be some sort of a prophet. He must be some sort of a prophet, because who can do what he did? After Jesus asked him if he believed in the Son of Man, the man answers, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So earlier on in the gospel, in chapter 1 and verse 12, John said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The New Testament is replete with verse after verse that says the same thing, that man must volitionally believe in Jesus Christ or he will die in his sins. So John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So let's break down belief. Let's just, let's just ask the questions that need to be asked and answered about what belief is. Right? Because if, 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 if Paul and Silas were asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then what is belief? What, is, what does that mean? Is it an acknowledgement? Because I, as I said earlier, it, there's not much doubt that Jesus existed on the earth 2,000 years ago. I mean, Secular historians who got no skin in the game at all record many of the instances of Jesus' life. So that's not really the question, did Jesus exist? But it's really, who is Jesus? And what is he calling for? He's calling for us to believe in him. So what does believe mean? What, what is involved with this belief? Well, we take the preponderance of what we see in the New Testament, and we see that it's more than an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. That's part of it. We can't believe in something that we don't know what it is, right? So we, we, we believe based upon who that person is, in this case, Christ. So we, we can believe, on, but we must know who he is. We must know that he is who he said he was. He is the one who was predicted back in the Old Testament to come as the Messiah. And this is really at the heart of, because this is all in the Old Testament economy. All the Gospels are in the Old Testament economy. The New Testament economy, even though this is recorded for us in the New Testament, the, the New Testament economy doesn't begin until after the death of Christ and the inauguration of the church. And then we get into the epistles and we learn how to honor the Lord with our lives as the church, but this is all under the law. This is all under the law. So Jesus is, is operating in an Old Testament environment 
This is why they had the synagogues for instruction. People would go to the synagogues and they would be instructed in the Old Testament scriptures. We talked last week about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so that was what they would center their teaching upon, was on the Torah. And so they would go and they would learn more about God. And they were steeped in the scriptures. Many of these people, including the Pharisees, steeped in the scriptures. They understood and they knew the scriptures. But what they had missed is Jesus was the one that was predicted to come and to be the Messiah. And so that is really at the heart of all of this is who is Jesus? And so he asks the man, do you believe? And then the the man responds, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And this is where all this comes together. Jesus essentially says, you're looking at him, which is interesting, isn't it? Because he couldn't see a thing before, but now he's looking at the Messiah. He's looking at the sinless son of God. Jesus says, I am he, I am the son of man. Jesus presented himself as the object of this man's saving faith. And this man's spiritual eyes are opened. He believes in Jesus. And it says here, Lord, I believe. Which means he acknowledged and knew in his heart of hearts who Jesus was, who he said he was. But part of belief is also not just acknowledging and having an understanding as to who Jesus is, but believing and trusting in what he has come to do. And again, this goes back to those questions that we talked about in the beginning. Why was Jesus there? What had he come to do? And that's why we work through that survey of the Gospel of John that helps us to understand why Jesus came. He came very particularly to do the will of the Father, to come and to do what no one could do because all of us are sinners. All of us are separated from God. All of us are spiritually blind. He came to open the eyes of people in a spiritual fashion so that they may see who he is and they may put their faith and trust in him and his future sacrifice in their stead so that they may have eternal life. This is is an amazing account. And so just in the same way that Jesus gave this man physical sight, he gives him spiritual sight. And if the story ended there, if it ended right there, there would be a universal celebration, but the question wouldn't be answered as to what about those who fail to believe? What about those who fail to believe? And so this brings us to the third reality, and it is that Jesus showers judgment on those who do not believe. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. When I read that, Again, when I began study for the message for today, uh, it seemed a little convoluted to me. Does that seem a little convoluted? Like, what does he mean by that? It seems contradictory to some of the other things that we considered. 
Scripture tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, right? That was his mission. But to those who fail to believe in him, he clearly states that they're going to get what they deserve. This is what Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is no eternal life for those who reject Jesus. This idea that everyone will one day see Jesus uh, in glory is absolutely false. Those who reject Jesus receive eternal judgment, not eternal life. And so here we find three results in the text. And the first we find here in verse 39, and it is judgment. Verse 39 again says, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see become blind. Jesus is saying here that those who think they see but do not may become permanently blind, spiritually blind, may become permanently spiritually blind because of their own self-deception. And so while Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he also came to cast judgment on all those who refused to believe in him. These so-called seeker-sensitive churches have whitewashed those truths from their narrative. As Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul that sins, it shall die. Second, there is deflection. So first, there's judgment. Second, there is deflection. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? There's always deflection and denial from unbelievers. Interestingly, Jesus must not have been alone when he found this blind man, right? I mean, obviously, there were many other people around, including these Pharisees. And those Pharisees sarcastically asked Jesus, we're not blind too, are we? Smugly, arrogantly, sarcastically, we're not blind too, are we? And again, as I said earlier, religious pride puffs up, but God gives grace to the humble. Those whose eyes are opened to the awfulness of their sin and their need for redemption, for forgiveness, for salvation. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that we're very clear here, every man, woman, and child hasn't just made some mistakes. We have all sinned against a holy and glorious God. There is none righteous, not even one of us. The standard is not whether we're better than our neighbor or better than other people. The standard is the holiness of God. People love to deflect, don't they? When confronted with this idea that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, Immediately, almost immediately, and I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to about this over the years, immediately when I begin to talk to them about their sin, they will go to some sort of deflective measure to try to make me think that they're not really that bad. Have you spoken with people about this before when you talk to them about their sin? They're not really that bad because they're a pretty good person. I mean, they have a nice home, they take care of their property, they're very kind to their neighbors, 
There's all these things that they will list as to be able to try to prove that they're not all that bad. What do you mean I'm a sinner? I have never killed anybody. I've never done these heinous crimes. Those prisons are full of people like that. Yeah, they're sinners, but me, I'm not all that bad. I can introduce you to bad people if you want me to introduce you to bad people, but, but I'm not really that bad. And so there's this natural deflection from unbelievers. So part of this whole idea of belief is the initial acknowledgement, not of just who Jesus is, but who we are. Do you ever remember coming to the end of yourself and realizing how bad we really are? I mean, this was so profound with me because I was like this church kid, and I mean, I, I was obedient. I was following all the rules. I mean, our parents brought us to church. I was in church every week, and so I would have fallen into that category. I'm not really that bad. Yes, I, you know, did this or that to my brother or my sisters or the kids at school or whatever. Yeah, I've made some mistakes. But I, how can I be that bad? I'm in church. I, I'm singing songs. Uh, I'm memorizing the Bible. I was in Bible quizzing, uh, competing against other kids from other churches with questions about the Bible. I knew a lot about the Bible, but what I didn't know was a lot about me. I thought I was pretty good with God. And so part of belief and part of that understanding is who Jesus Christ is. Why did he come? He came to save people like me and you, not good people. He came to save sinners like us. And so often people will deflect. We're really not that bad. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, yes, we are. When, when the weight of my sin hit me, I'm telling you, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was at a church camp. I mean, I was there because I was a church kid. And when, when it hit me that I am religious but lost, so profound. When the Lord opened my eyes to his truth about who Jesus is, why he came, where he was from, he opened my eyes about who I was. And that is all part of what Jesus came to do. So we don't have every word that Jesus said when he encountered this blind man. We don't have all of the account of all that. But the Pharisees, the religious people, big time deflectors. And then number three, there's rejection. And then this is verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sins. But since you say, but since you say we see, your sin remains. So what does that mean? So Jesus is answering the Pharisees in some sort of a, a backhanded way. He says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. And what he meant by that was, if they confessed that they were spiritually blind and believe in him, they would have no sin that would be counted against them because it would be forgiven. But since that wasn't the case, their sin remains. Meaning, they remain dead in their sins, spiritually blind, spiritually dead. And this is why I encouraged all of us last week to get out of our comfort zones 
and to give the powerful gospel message to someone this past week. Because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that God uses to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. This is what people need. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. God must work in their life drawing that person to himself. And in that drawing, man will see his sin for what it is. He'll see Jesus Christ for who he is. And there's a miraculous exchange that happens. Our sin is credited to the account of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. And so when we stand before Jesus, we don't present our righteousness, because that's like filthy rags. We present the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. If you're here today and you need Jesus as your Savior, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What a promise. What a promise. And we're thankful. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you this morning for what you have done in our lives. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, as we contemplate that now, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that we'll think about what it is that you have done for us through Jesus. We're so grateful for him. And Lord, if there's someone here today that needs Christ as their Savior, that they would believe. That they would come to the end of themselves, acknowledge their own sin before a holy God, and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. That is our prayer. We thank you. And we praise you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.